it's natural when we come into the monastery and practice that we have doubts, uncertainty about the whole practice. Most of us come out of an interest in the Buddha's teachings, having practiced some meditation, read and heard teachings, and we might feel an affinity with the basic concepts and principles of Buddhist practice. And we can remember some of the teachings maybe. But as you quickly realize, just knowing a bit of Dhamma isn't enough to keep you in the monastery and to keep you in the training. You need other qualities as well. If you ask any monk who's been in the robes for a number of years, it's not not that they can remember some of the basic suttas and principles and philosophy that the Buddha taught that has kept them in the robes. Some deeper qualities in the commitment coming from some faith, confidence in the path, faith in the teacher, faith in the training, some self-confidence that one can do the training, and then the patient effort applying oneself to the training, being willing to go through whatever problems and obstacles and difficulties come up. So sometimes it's just making clear determination in the mind that whatever comes up, leaving is not an option. If you do that, maybe you make an aditana or train for five years as a Nawaka monk. It makes the mind peaceful on one level. It doesn't get rid of your karma and the different moods and objects and feelings that come up. But it does cut out some of the mental proliferation and the doubting because you just cut that option out. It's not an option to leave. And when I first became a monk, it never even occurred to me that I would leave simply because there were difficulties in in the practice because I'd made a commitment to train. So it narrows down your options. Sure, you might consider different routines and different meditation objects and different aspects of the practice But if you can make some kind of resolution to just stick with whatever the problems are, then it makes things much more straightforward in the mind. If you keep open the option to leave, to leave the robes altogether, then of course the mind might keep dwelling on that and going to that. And it never settles down so you don't get quite the same steadiness of mind that comes from having some faith and some commitment. So faith in the path, in the teacher, in the way of practice, and in oneself, that one can 
learn from experience and come to understand the Dhamma. This is probably the starting point for living in a monastery for a long time, whether it's for a few years or many years. Then Ajahn Chah also used to emphasize over and over again the importance of being one who is easy to look after, content with little. You say, Maknoi Sandot. Learning to develop a certain equanimity towards one's own desires for comfort, convenience that we had in the lay life wanting to get things that we want, getting everything the way we want. This is the heart of the monastic training again, it's nekama bharami, having equanimity towards desire for sense, sense objects, and particularly say for the four requisites, learning to be content with whatever comes one's way the food that's offered, the accommodation, the robes, whatever medical help is available. So it's directly the opposite of the more cultural norm in our lay life, which is to always feel entitled that I should be able to get something that I want, what I desire. I can choose the food that I want, the medical care that I want, the kind of place to live that I want, the clothes that I want, and so on. That kind of mind state we have to give up. This is the heart of a samana. A samana is one who is equanimous. Whatever food is offered, a lot or a little, agrees with us or not, we practice equanimity, patience, restraint, lodgings, robes, medical help, same. That's the mind of a samana. Mind of a lay person is always to be dissatisfied, discontent, wanting more, feeling entitled to more, expecting more expecting to get different things, get what we want. That's the mind of a lay person. The mind of a samana is equanimous, willing to maybe do with second best or nothing at all sometimes. That doesn't change whether you've been in the robes one year or thirty years. This is the mind state of a samana, learning to be content with little easy to look after. The benefit is that one one finds a certain ease in living. One can live with different conditions, different people. The mind isn't stirred up by desire all the time. One's consciously letting go of desire, making do and appreciating what we've got, not taking things for granted not trying to manipulate other people or situations to get more. So the mind becomes very calm, steady, easy to train in mindfulness, samadhi and then insight. 
you think about it, we develop meditation objects, say like contemplating impermanence. And the Buddha said we can't even take for granted that there'll be another breath to breathe in. You know, every breath the Tathagata is contemplating impermanence, maybe it's my last breath. Even that we can't take for granted. Can't take for granted that we'll be here tomorrow. We might die in our sleep. Even more so, we can't take granted the four requisites. We can't expect to be getting this or getting that, or the things that the mind might throw up, the desires and the plans. You're learning to let go of that, not to take things for granted, not to expect very much at all. If we can't expect the next breath, we can't possibly expect better and more kinds of requisites. This is, this is the heart of the Samana's life, Nekamabharami, learning to be content with what comes our way. But generally it generates a lot of support, so without planning and manipulating things, we usually get enough food and lodgings and medical support anyway, but it's without Kilesa directing it. It's not coming through our greed, anger and delusion. It's coming through just the good karma generated through Nekama Bharami. So it's more pure. having faith in the way of practice and developing contentment with the requisites. These are sort of the foundations, the principles of monastic training that we build our practice on. And a lot of it comes through experience, just, just living in a monastery, being willing to stick with the practice, keeping an open mind, one can't help but learn. <clears throat> we learn about ourselves, we learn about other people, and we learn about the world around us. But some of that, that we learn, some of that knowledge can only come through experience over time. You can't force feed the kind of knowledge that leads to liberation. Yeah, that's why they, we chant, it's like the the effect of Dhamma on the mind is like the sun awakening the lotus. You have to wait for the sun's rays to hit the flower or hit the water and then gradually warm it up and then it gradually opens. It's never going to be sort of one short spark. There might be moments where there seems to be spark of insight, spark of enlightened enlightened knowledge arising, but they'll just be part of a more gradual, long-term path of practice. So we have to be willing to do that, to be patient enough to give the practice time so that we can learn from experience. Learn how to use the Vinaya as a tool rather than just react to it as something I like or don't like. I'm good at or bad at comparing ourselves with others and so on. That might be our initial 
way of relating to the Vinaya, but over time you might start to see it as a friend that supports you, the deepening of the practice of samadhi and the deepening of insight, keeping you out of trouble, keeping you, you peaceful and restrained. Same with meditation techniques that we develop, development of mindfulness in daily life and in a meditation, using a meditation object. That practice will take some time to learn how to practice mindfulness in daily life, <coughs> to be mindful of our interaction with other people in the monastery, how much we speak and what we say and what we do, how much we sleep, how much we do sitting and walking meditation, the other activities we're involved in, you know, learning to be mindful and reflective through all that takes time. It's a practice that you keep reviewing and learning through experience what works and what doesn't work. You have to be able to accept sometimes some practices don't work very well. That doesn't matter as long as you've tried with a sincere interest to learn about your own mind and what works to help you abandon Kalesa or what is actually bringing up Kalesa, you get to see that. And sometimes we learn through mistakes. Sometimes we push too hard, use willpower, and then back off a bit. Other times we just indulge, get too lazy, not enough discipline. To find the middle way and the balanced way of practice is not such an easy thing. We have to try and experiment over time. And that kind of knowledge also is not just book knowledge, is it? Even if you've read all the suttas and all the teachings from the different teachers we have, it's still just words. We have to gain the kind of knowledge, use those words to start with, but then gain this knowledge in, internally through our own experience, watching and learning from our own mind. It's not quite the same thing. little by little practicing and practicing in the monastery, using the Vinaya as a foundation for behavior and the way we live, and developing the Samana Sanya, learning, training ourselves to think like a Samana, act like a Samana, the sort of the two legs of a Samana is the contentment being easy to look after is one leg and then harmlessness is the other just learning to be gentle with other people and with oneself 
learning not to be harmful in one's speech, one's actions, to be patient with the difficulties of life, living with others, living in the world, always be developing uh, kindness and compassion, harmlessness. These are like the two legs of a samana. Keep having to review that, keep coming back to those principles. And then the head of the samana is the wisdom. coming to reflect on the way we live in this world, the way the world is, coming to know how it is through experience and seeing you know, this human life that we have is impermanent. The body is impermanent, it's changing all the time, aging, gets sick. Our thoughts and views and opinions changing all the time. Our mental experience. What's true for us is true for others around us. Everybody comes under the same basic unit there, under the same universal characteristics. We're all subject to impermanence. The material world, the physical world, the four elements that make up a body, make up trees and mountains and buildings and all the technology and other things that we have in this world. Constant state of flux, changing. We make things and they degenerate and they break and they fall apart. People are the same. Material things are the same. There's nothing we can own or have or make last in this world. Gradually coming to accept that, this is where peace, real peace, real understanding comes. So that mind lets go of this habit of always desiring and grasping at experience, wanting more, wanting better, wanting different kinds of happiness that are reliant on sense contact and having things going places and so on. Just coming to take refuge in anicca. What is anicca is dukkha, what is dukkha is anatta. And just being willing to confront one's own thoughts and things, one's own opinions and views. And just this basic belief we have that this body and mind is a self. This is our starting point, unenlightened beings, always. Just take everything as self. So we're grasping at the body and mind, feelings, thought formations as self. And constantly getting caught into stress and suffering because of it, because they're constantly changing. The mind and the body, they just don't give us what we want what we wish for, because they condition things subject to impermanence, changing all the time. As long as we grasp at them, identify with them, 
as self. We're always being disappointed by our own five candors, disappointed by other people's five candors. So only when we realize this point, the mind steps back, detaches a bit, it's willing to let go of its expectations about the candors, always wanting more, wanting things to be different, better than what we got different than what we've got. And as long as our own minds are not yet peaceful, we're still caught up into all our different moods and desires. And that's our motivation to practice, isn't it? Just keep coming back to becoming aware of our own minds and see the suffering of all the thought formations and how we grasp at them. And this is me, mine, the way I think, the way I like things, the way I don't like things. Grasping at all that all the time, this is suffering. As long as that's still taking place in our experience, and we're grasping this body as mine and suffering with that. And this is our motivation to practice. However much we may have attained so far in our practice, you know, even if you've been practicing many years, meditating, listening to Dhamma, reflecting on things, if you, take, if you still have experience of dukkha, but you're kind of ignoring it because you're satisfied with what you've attained so far in the practice, then you're always going to be on shaky ground. The mind will become easily get caught into apathy or even just end up following desires. Maybe even leave the robes. It's always possible to leave the robes after 20, 30, 40 years. Still possible. You know, the one thing we can be discontent with is what we've attained so far if it hasn't yet brought us to the end of suffering. It's not to look down on what we've achieved if we've learned how to meditate, we've learned the Dhamma, we've lived in the robes, many, maybe kept the Vinaya for many years. But if we still haven't got beyond suffering, all that attainment is still very limited. Even if we've attained deep states of samadhi, it's still limited if the kilesas are still bothering us, still have greed, hatred and delusion arising in different ways in our heart, still grasping at candors as self. We still have to practice Perhaps one of the more subtle delusions of the samana is that well, we do get some, achieve some sense of peace over time, maybe get used to keeping the precepts, listen to the Dhamma so we understand intellectually what it means. We maybe do some good things, we help ourselves, help other people in the community, 
help the Sangha, help the lay community. It can bring us much happiness and even meditation we can achieve much happiness and contentment from our meditation. But if we still have an uprooted greed, anger and delusion, then that can all become, actually become a source of delusion for us. It's good enough, we've achieved enough so far, and we can become a little bit lazy or apathetic in the practice or just distracted from the practice. Maybe the original drive to really work, motivate the mind to practice mindfulness, we lose, lose our way with that. Because we've achieved a certain level and then we take that as good enough. If you look at the, the Buddha as our teacher, we're coming up to Visakha, Visakha Puja. You know, the reason he went and sat under the Bodhi tree because he realized he still hadn't uprooted suffering and its causes from his heart. And he had trained with the best teachers in the land and attained great states of refined samadhi. Kept precepts, lived very simply, had great endurance, already had great wisdom and so on. But still he knew this wasn't the end of suffering and he wasn't going to just sit back and take what he had attained as good enough. So that's the one motivation that say even Aryapugala still got that. If they haven't reached the end of suffering then there's still going to be that nagging voice that's can recognize there's still kilesa prompting different kinds of suffering in the mind. Still more, more to be done. That doesn't change whether you've been in the robes one year or 30 years or 50 years. As long as suffering is still there, the causes of suffering are still there, need to be addressed, then we have to keep practicing. So we can never be complacent, never take things for granted. Can't take the requisites for, for granted. We can't take our health for granted. Maybe this year it's good, next year we might lose it. We might get cancer, who knows. Can't even take the next breath for granted. And we can't take the attainments we've achieved already for granted, if they still haven't yet brought us to the end of suffering. Everything is in a state of flux, everything is uncertain. But we can turn that to our advantage. Because things are uncertain, then we practice. We reflect on that, we learn from that. Not to be complacent. Not to let delusion take over the mind and just sort of go make us dull or fixed in our views and assume it's all everything we think is correct and right already. Because things are uncertain, we have to be able to challenge even our own thoughts on things, our own attitudes and views. If we can keep doing that within the context of practice, keeping the Vinaya, meditating, developing mindfulness and so on, 
then there's always the chance to progress, to go further with the practice, to find deeper insight and to experience the peace, the happiness from that. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.